So I want to talk this morning about the basics of our practice. And I want to also connect that to telling some stories of the um, fairly long retreat that I just finished. Fairly, fairly fresh I am at the moment from coming, from being in the mountains for about uh, three weeks. Uh, I rented a cabin at Vajrapani, which is uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And they have a wonderful system there whereby one can rent a cabin. They have six retreat cabins on top of a ridge. It's off the grid. They have their own generator, so it's off the electrical grid. And it's right next to Castle Rock State Park. And so uh, I'll talk about the basics of our practice and be referring some to my own experience, because I, I both personally like to share some of those experiences, and I've been told that people like to hear about them. <laughs> and it kind of has a way of uh, further connecting from the last month. And so I was um, basically in this cabin, and um, there were deer wandering around continually. There was a, a family that came by every day with a buck and a doe and a young buck. And they, and they walked by every day, and the first day the buck came and just stared at me for about 10 or 15 minutes. So I guess checking me out to make, you know, put me in the friend or foe category. <laughs> right? And I became a friend. <laughs> and so I came by and um, every day, and there were uh, rattlesnakes around some. I saw three rattlesnakes. And they're very courteous. <laughs> and they're not aggressive, except for the little ones. And so, uh, but I basically just sat in the cabin for three weeks and uh, followed a process of um, having four periods a day. Uh, One before I I ate breakfast and one after breakfast before lunch, another one in the afternoon, another one in the evening. They had this wonderful system where they bring food up from the main center kind of for each person who's on retreat, in a little basket, almost like a picnic basket. And they bring, at uh, noon, they bring uh, a hot lunch from down below in plastic containers or, you know, in jars. And then they also bring up for the evening meal uh, soup and salad. And each cabin has like a two-burner propane or two, a two, yeah, two-burner propane heater. And so we can cook and we have a little sink hooked up to a hose in the, on the deck. And um, there's a refrigerator and uh, two bathrooms for you know, kind of a blockhouse for all the uh, cabins. So in the refrigerator, there's fruit and milk and breads and cheese and so forth. So it can basically be pretty self-sustaining and hardly see any other people. So I basically just sat, mostly sat, for most of the time. And I would take, I would... Uh, wake up and sit and um, then have breakfast and take care of some things. I typically would do a little bit of reading um, after each meal, 10 or 15 minutes. And then I just would go and into a sitting period. And I love to just sit for basically two or two and a half hours. Um, not always in the same posture, sometimes shifting, but basically keeping a sustained sitting for two or sometimes three hours. And then I would do some walking meditation, and then it'd be time for lunch. <laughs> and then I'd 
have lunch and I'd clean up and do a little bit of reading and typically take a, like a 15-minute nap. And then I'd come back for another period and do two or three hours of sitting. And then I'd typically do a, uh, about a 30-minute wa- walk around, you know, like about a three-mile walk around the, through the forest. And then it'd be time for the evening meal. <laughs> I would do that and do a little reading, and then I'd do the, be in the evening, uh, do an evening sitting, which was almost entirely sitting. And I loved that because I didn't use lights. And I would just sit there as the, the darkness came. As very much, even though I was out uh, inside, I was looking, the cabin is about 12 by 15 feet, and I'd be looking over, uh, basically looking, the big window, maybe 10 feet wide, basically looking down the valley, down the hill, across to a ridge about two miles away, towards the east, so it had the sun coming up. So it felt, and the, you know, felt that there were sounds and just sounds everywhere. So it was very much in the wilds. And uh, I didn't use clocks. No clocks for three weeks. I'll talk about that later. So you kind of get the, the setting. And it felt very much like going back to the basics. And that, so that's the theme I want to explore uh, further today, and I was thinking that it's suitable not just because of the retreat, because retreats are often back to the basics, but also because of this time of year in our culture, that the uh, day after people return uh, after Labor Day, it's a time of what? Going back to school, some people are leaving, periods of more leisure or more vacation. Uh, it's the Jewish New Year is coming up, it's a, for for others, it's the time of harvesting. And so there's a t- really a time, a sense of beginning a new cycle. Uh, and how many people have some sense of that for yourselves, some sense of beginning a new cycle? So it's wonderful to, as it were, review what the basics are, coming back to the basics. And for me, retreat does that. And also it's really helpful to just ground there, as it were, as we, as we go forward. So I'll talk generally about several areas of basics. I think I'll divide it into maybe four main areas. One is sort of the preparations, the, uh, which has to do with intention and um, um, motivation. Second would be the uh, practices of um, concentration and awareness. Third would be the, the heart practices of loving-kindness and compassion. And fourth would be, how do we bring this out into the world? So I'm going to generally cover uh, those four areas and just name uh, a few different areas, which are really the basics of our practice. And as you hear them, you might say, which of these resonate for me? Which do I need more attention to? Uh, Because in, in a way, naming these basics is like giving a map of the entirety of our practice. And I, you know, I, we could do that in, in some depth, but I just want to name them and sort of and, and, and have us, uh, as it were, ask, uh, where do I need more attention here or there or in some other area? Kind of a checklist. So first, the, the, the preparations. Uh, I think when we, um, when we practice, we have some presuppositions. I think to really explore one's consciousness and one's mind, to bring that into life, we have a kind of foundation, what we might call of ethics. And I'm actually not going to talk much about that, but I wanted to name it. That ethics is a kind of a, 
a foundation. Uh, another metaphor we might use is that it really it brings us a kind of safety and it brings safety to others when we act ethically. And so I think for me, for this retreat, ethics was just a presupposition. You know, so I was careful with the bugs, the ants in the cabin, careful with the rattlesnakes, and they were careful with me. We were both ethical. <laughs> I don't know if they were considering themselves in training, but uh, they, were, they were courteous, as I, as I mentioned. And so we have to remember that, that, that acting ethically is a foundation. If, we, if we're not acting ethically, actually, typically our minds will be a little bit, um, or a lot more, distracted. And it's very, if you noticed, if ethical issues, if you feel off ethically, it can preoccupy one's mind. Or if one is unethical, just the constant scheming, strategizing. It's, it's the way that uh, telling the truth, for example, which is a pillar of ethics, keeps life very simple. Not telling the truth requires constant remembering of what I told what person, what strategy I had, and so forth. You know, we can see this in recent political events. <laughs> have you noticed that people, you know, when, when we have a sense that people are spinning things or not continually telling the truth, it takes up so much of their time. They have to hire lawyers, you know, all sorts of things happen. And it's, it's much simpler. It's so there, there's a way that living ethically simplifies our experience. doesn't always make it easier. You know, sometimes acting ethically is challenging, particularly if we're in a, an environment that's not so ethical. It can be challenging, but it keeps, in a certain sense, it keeps us uh, very uh, connected with the, the basics. In, in, a, in a sense, it lets our mind explore other matters rather than being strategic. Another part of the preparation is really uh, clarifying intentions and knowing the need for inner work and for bringing it out into our lives. Um, An intention is central to our practice and being in touch with our, with our deeper intentions. For me, for this retreat, I had actually made the plan for the retreat six months before. Um, when, after I had done a longer retreat in February because of it felt just like so precious. And I knew in a way that if I didn't schedule it, other things would invade the time and space. So I, I said, I'm just going to schedule this and not have anything else come in. And that's often wise to do, I think. You know? and, you know, and it's sometimes necessary. Our lives get busy and sometimes we have to have these boundaries that reflect our intentions on what we'll do. Also, I knew from before going into the retreat that in a way a lot had built up for me. Uh, and, and we may sometimes feel this, um, that I'd been very active teaching, very busy holding a lot of uh, responsibilities, and particularly I'd been, I've been guiding this uh, Path of Engagement program, which, which um, several of you are in, and which... Um, is a lot of work. It's basically it's this program, Connect with Spirit Rock, which is a training program, and in a way I'm helping to oversee 50 people's development and about 18 teachers who are helping with the program. And it requires some attention. <laughs> and things come up and have to, you know, have to deal with a lot of issues and doing other things. I could feel that even though I felt basically balanced and centered, there was also a buildup, and I was really happy 
to drop that and drop no emails, no telephones, and really to um, move away from the daily um, cycles, move away from the, from the cycles of activity. And that's a privilege to be able to do that. Not everyone can do that so easily in the way that I did it. But in a way, our practice um, invites us to find ways to, uh, as it were, uh, leave our typical habits, you know, to get some distance from the uh, pressured world of our habits and our conditioning. And, that's, and we can do this in a variety of ways. It can, I think when we just sit for 45 minutes and come here, it's like, in a way, it's like coming into another space, isn't it? Where we can have some deeper, we can have some insight into our habits. We can notice. That's what, just in doing meditation at home, we're doing that. We're really trying to um, um, suspend our habits, suspend our, our typical actions, and go more deeply. And it's so crucial to be able to do that. It's so crucial to be able to have a sustained time to really do that. And for me, it was particularly uh, helpful to just uh, have virtually no reference to human clocks for three weeks. Just very, very um, nourishing. It's almost like to be more um, focused on the flow of life, moment to moment. I think it's part of your motivation maybe for being outside with the meditation desk. But to be away from the clocks, to be more connected with the wild, it's really to follow attention. And, and organized retreats are wonderful, you know, that have schedules and so forth. It's actually, when you when we think about it, most, um, let's say most Buddhist practitioners haven't worked with schedules and clocks and retreat centers in the 2,500 years. They actually worked much more uh, close to nature when you, when you reflect on it, that this whole thing with clocks and schedules, I think it's, yeah, I think it's more done in, the, um, in, some, in the, some of the Chinese and Japanese traditions, but certainly the traditions of Southeast Asia and India, they didn't even have group meditations in India. And in, even in, in, if you go to Thailand, group meditation or doing something like what we're doing is, is not so common. Mostly people just sit in their own cabins where they walk in the forest, where they live in the forest and live very close to nature. And what I loved during my retreat was just this following of my own um, uh, wisdom moment to moment without attention to schedule or clocks. Other than those four periods, whatever would happen was really open to some checking in internally. So I didn't, I didn't use an alarm for sleeping. I went to sleep when I was really tired, and I woke up when I was rested. No waking up to alarms. Again, it can be valuable during retreats to do that, but it was wonderful to really stay with that process and to uh, really, in a way, uh, give myself to it. It's, it's really, and it actually was connected with a, um, almost a sense of the, the boundaries getting less, the boundaries between inner and outer, between human and tree and deer and sky, those boundaries uh, diminished in importance. And it it was uh, just a wonderful way to um, go outside of usual habits. And And so I think each of us have to find some way of doing that. 
So the second area are the, the kind of uh, the practices of concentration and awareness. And I want to talk some about those because that was really the heart of this retreat. And it's really, in a way, the heart of our practice. First, uh, con- developing concentration is necessary for this practice, for the practice of awareness, for really going more deeply. We have to uh, develop the ability to be non-distracted, relatively non-distracted. This is why we start with focusing on the breath. That in order to be able to see clearly, we need to have some space around the repetitive thoughts, around the fixations that we were talking about. We need to be able, even if it's just to say, there is a fixation, there is a repetitive thought, that already is a different um, mode. That's what we call mindfulness. That mindfulness requires a minimal level of concentration. It doesn't require the deepest absorptions, but it requires that we be able to stay in a sustained way with the object of attention, to be able to notice it, to be able to notice. And so, for some of us, uh, it can be important to deepen our concentration. We can do this in a few different ways. We can do this by having our meditations be regular, be, be every day. We can do this by focusing on the breath, by really giving attention to that continual coming back, not because that's what builds concentration. We can also do um, day-longs or retreats, which can, in a way, uh, deepen our concentration. I remember when I was starting meditation, I was very motivated. I was doing, in my first few years of practice, I was a student, so I, had, uh, I didn't have as many responsibilities in some ways, but I had some. And I was practicing probably averaging two or three hours a day. I was really into it. And it helped. But even so, when I did my first retreat, which was about, um, I think about a year after I started, and let's see, that was, I think I, I, did, I did one near the time I started, but I remember when I did my first retreat in this particular tradition. I think the first retreat I did was a Zen retreat. I, did, I remember subjectively saying, I did like uh, um, two weeks on retreat. And I said, this feels like my concentration has deepened in these 14 days as much as it had during one year of doing two hours a day. And so there's a way that retreats are wonderful for deepening concentration and I think important for, for each of us. And it can be, doesn't have to be 14 days, it can be one day or three days, but if we're really wanting to go deeply, we have to find ways to have our minds get more concentrated. And for some of us, we're naturally concentrated, and others of us, that's harder, and we usually have other virtues like wisdom. (laughs) 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 Or compassion. (laughs) So don't worry, if if concentration is an issue, you probably have these other wonderful qualities that there are a lot of people who are deeply concentrated or aren't very wise, so don't worry. <laughs> and are not very compassionate. So it's a, it's a mix. So con- just to name concentration, and for myself, in this retreat, uh, concentration was the basis for the work I was doing. So I, I started by just really focusing on the mind. And whenever there was any kind of um, uh, sense of distraction, I would just come back to essentially working with the breath. Then I'll mention one other area that actually, before talking about awareness practice, which is interesting, 
is that um, there's an interesting relationship that we explore in our practice between our our, um, exploration of the more personal and psychological materials in our experience and the more universal qualities of consciousness and awareness. So on the, on, the, on the latter side, we would talk about impermanence, we talk about the nature of suffering, we explore the nature of consciousness, we look into what develops compassion. And in the Dharma talks we give, we often talk about them very uh, more in the sense of these being universal potentials for human beings. And yet on the other side, there's also our own personal journeys our own personal working with the materials in our consciousness. And there's an interesting balance between the two. And in a way, when we meditate, when we open up our experience, we get both, don't we? We get uh, some of what we explore when we sit is very, very personal. And it may be that, you know, I know for myself over time uh, that the process of sitting and practicing and walking over the years has had great impact on my own psychological development. It's opened up, it's, it's, off, it's offered ways to work with emotions, to look at self-image, to, to work with um, issues around whatever, anger or self-judgment or whatever. And so there's, there are ways in which both are there. And for me on this retreat it was interesting because there, there, there was some material that was very personal and some of the retreat was very universal. Some of, you know, you know, for example, I noticed that certain, as I would sit there, especially having been busy, there were personal issues which came up. I noticed at times certain um, poignancy. One of the things that happens when we sit is we kind of sometimes get in touch with the deeper aspirations that are covered over in daily life. Like I noticed, oh, you know, I'm getting older. <laughs> Deep wisdom there. <laughs> uh, but just notice it's a way of tuning in to, okay, what, what is, where am I in my cycle? What do I, what do I want? What's next? Where, what's the big picture? And that's, that's a beautiful aspect of this giving attention. And I noticed also a certain uh, poignancy. I noticed, oh, I've been really busy. I haven't been in touch with these friends. I feel sad about that. You know, so certain, certain understandings. And there were some... Um, there was some family material at times <laughs> that came up in the retreat that I sat with. You know, that, that um, uh, I think I got more insight fr- about. And in a way, uh, that's part of the process of looking more deeply. There's a certain way that we, and it's, it's a, it's an, it's, I think it's one of the areas that we in this culture are actually going to make great contributions to, to, I think, to spiritual traditions in general by by. There's so much um, beautiful work being done these days looking at the connection between the more psychological and the more universally spiritual. You know, because in many ways, the, um, the, when you read the text, there's off, especially from the text of the Buddha and the teachings, there's often not so much about the personal. And I think part of what we're doing in our culture is we're actually looking for that balance. And it's partly that the personal for us is different than 2,500 years ago. You know, it's actually, it's a whole very fascinating area that we can explore another time. And so, 
the main practice that I did in this retreat, this is moving to the theme of awareness, the main practice that I did was a kind of open awareness, uh, actually without focus. Our typical practice that we do is mindfulness practice. We have an object, we work with the breath, we identify what's happening experience, we identify anger, joy, thoughts, um, and so forth. We try to get a very clear sense of what's happening. And this is one very crucial kind of um, meditation. It's actually at the center of what we do here. It's really this mindfulness, this naming, this cultivating the ability to be aware, to name. And there's also another kind of practice which we don't teach so much here, which is more going in the opposite direction. The mindfulness kind of focuses the mind, lets us see very clearly, and the aim there, the aim of doing that, the aim of uh, focusing on the object of experience is to come to the universal qualities of experience. It's to be able to see impermanence. It's to be able to see the roots of suffering. If we really focus and notice when I'm suffering, am I grasping onto something compulsively? And what helps me to um, end that suffering? What helps me to transform the roots of suffering? Well, when we um, do the mindfulness practice, we focus very precisely uh, on experience. We name that. And out of that, we, we free ourselves from where we're fixated, or we free ourselves from where we're caught, where we're ignorant, and so forth. And so we focus on very precise objects of meditation in order to come to the more universal uh, truths and to move towards freedom. There's another kind of practice, which was my own focus, which is that of opening up awareness and not using an object. It's basically just sitting there with a kind of open awareness. This generally takes a fair amount of concentration because without some concentration, the mind would just get distracted. And in fact, this is similar to some practices in the Tibetan tradition called uh, Dzogchen. And one teacher talks about Dzogchen, the cultivation of this very open awareness as uh, non-distracted, (laughs) non-meditation. And another, uh, one of the, I was mostly reading two books during this time, and one of the books I was reading is an amazing book called Blazing Splendor, the memoirs of Toku Ergen Rinpoche, who is a a wonderful teacher who died about 10 years ago, who was a teacher to many uh, spirit rock teachers, including uh, John Travis. And um, he was, it's a beautiful book, it's in the bookstore, Blazing Splendor is his Dharma name. Wouldn't you like to have a name like Blazing Splendor? (laughs) And and so it's a a very inspiring book to read. It's mostly stories. They're stories. It's basically a story of what Tibet was like from from basically 1850 to 1960. And they're amazing stories. And it's another world. You know, there's, you know, there are great teachers who are completely clairvoyant, who, you know, predict the future and, read minds and so forth. And all these stories are there. His, his great-grandfather was a, what's called a, uh, a tertan, which is a revealer of, um, of uh, hidden dharma treasures, purportedly uh, hidden a thousand years ago by the great founder of Tibetan Buddhism, Padmasambhava, who 
said, some of the people of our time are not ready for these teachings, but here are some teachings that will be good for, you know, about 1850. <laughs> 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 and so he, the story, you know, this, and this is um, completely believed. So anyway, you might look at this. But so, so his great-grandfather was someone who discovered these hidden treasures in two main ways, some of them from just having them come into his mind in meditation, and some of them by actually physically discovering them and pulling them out of rocks. You know, he would, he would go to a place and rocks would open and, you know, some vase, some sacred vase would just come into presence. He did this with hundreds of witnesses. So, anyway, it's, it's a different worldview <laughs> than we have. So I was reading this and one of, the, one of the great teachers in that book said this open awareness is like, um, it's like having, being non-distracted, having a very open awareness but also having a very precise and clear sense of everything that's happening. So it's not focusing on anything, but knowing everything. So that's challenging. <laughs> it's a challenging kind of practice. And it's also very much in the Theravada tradition. And one of the other uh, books I was reading is a wonderful book by Achan Amarobhikkhu, who's on the teacher council, called Small Boat, Great Mountain, which is a wonderful book which came from his making connections between the Theravada teachings that inform Spirit Rock and the Dzogchen teachings. And really it's about this larger awareness. I wanted to just read a few quotes to give you a sense of this. And a lot of it's done with the eyes open. And it actually connects very well with daily life. It's, it's actually having the eyes open or, or closed and just having the whole process of phenomena come before one's experience and not focus on anything, but yet be aware of the process that's happening. So I would sit, and again, this took some concentration to get there, but it's, it's the, the, one of the reasons for doing it is that it's, it's actually uh, partly a study of where does the mind get fixated. It's basically sitting there and saying, I will focus on nothing. Let's see where I do focus. And then releasing that. It's, so it's like a study of where I get caught where I get fixated, and just sitting there and continually sitting there, watching the process go by, watching body sensations, thoughts, just letting them go, and then seeing where my mind fixates on them, and then releasing it. It's almost like it's similar to some other practices where we just are on the lookout for where there's suffering. And you might, something we can actually do here, just sit there and notice when I get caught, and then see if I can release it. And so this was, this was done by just sitting, watching, letting go. But it also, so it's partly a practice that lets one see where one's caught, where I'm fixated, where, the, where my mind clamps down, because the instructions are not to clamp down. But it also has the, has the sense, uh, and this is very explicit in, in uh, I think, all the traditions, that it has us, in a way, take refuge in awareness itself, in a very general way. And so for me, sitting there, it was like sitting and just my basic reality was the continuity of awareness. In Dzogchen tradition, it's said that this awareness that we all share in, when we actually touch it in a pure way, teaches us about our true nature, which goes beyond birth and death. That there's something about awareness which actually can touch the sacred. And many traditions, not just Buddhists, but many traditions, 
point to awareness as partaking of the quality of the sacred. And many meditation techniques let us follow awareness and deepen it and connect with it, particularly free of the personal as a way of actually touching the sacred and going in a way beyond birth and death. And this is certainly the teachings that are there in the Buddhist tradition. Again, not practiced so much here. We, in a way, in the Tibetan tradition, it's in a more of an advanced practice and one typically has to go through eight years of training before you get there full-time. Full, eight years of full-time training with all, you know, if you know Tibetan tradition, you know hundreds of thousands of prostrations that they do initially, which are a kind of uh, character training, so to speak. Some of, you, some of you know that. So I thought I'd read, just maybe I'll just read a few quotations here, and then I'll, then I'll come to closing. This is a Chanamro, and it's again a beautiful book uh, about this kind of open awareness practice. He says, by refusing to get entangled with any sense impressions, we find refuge in that quality of stillness, silence, and spaciousness, which is the mind's own nature. This policy of non-interference allows everything and is, dis- and is disturbed by nothing. So my instructions were, if anything disturbs you, let the mind get bigger. Let the mind open up and have space around whatever is happening. Achanamara goes on to say, in this respect I find my uh, meditation with the eyes open very helpful. With the eyes open, there's more of a challenge to exercise the same quality that normally is established only in walking meditation. If we keep our eyes open, and hold the space, we see the coming and going, sometimes of people, the changing light, the waxing and waning of the afternoon sun. We can let all of this just come and go and be held in that space of knowing, where there is a conscious experience of both the conventional and the ultimate truth. There is the ultimate view of there being no person, no time, no space, a kind of timeless knowing. Then there are the conventions, you, me, the objects coming and going and so forth. The two truths are totally interfused. One is not obstructing the other. And Achan Amaro thinks that it's actually this quality which is actually close to the quality that the Buddha experiences uh, when he awakens. That it's, and there, there are passages where the Buddha talks about this kind of, kind of awareness. Sometimes it's called an objectless, subjectless meditation. So interesting. Well, so that was that was my retreat for three weeks, <laughs> just hanging out there, and it's actually quite inspiring. It's also quite transferable to daily life, which is interesting because a lot of it's with eyes open, and so it's actually uh, something that can be done just during the day around the house and so forth. So the other uh, piece I wanted to mention, the third area I'm going to mention briefly, is uh, the heart practices. Because you could imagine with, I think this is true of all of our meditations, but there are ways in which when we cultivate mindfulness, we see the nature of suffering, we see uh, impermanence, there's a way that we can get a little bit um, distant. I don't know if that's a common experience, but certainly it's a, um, it's a danger of meditation that we can sort of not, we can be a little bit disconnected from ordinary life because we say, oh yeah, it's just impermanent just things coming and going, you know. Um, 
Joseph Goldstein has a phrase, endless phenomena rolling on. <laughs> you know? and, the, and the way the teachings are usually conveyed, it's to say, that's, yes, that's the wisdom dimension, but we have to bring in the compassion dimension, the heart dimension. And so for me, during this retreat, it was really important to do um, metta uh, several times a day and to do the loving-kindness practice, which, which touches in the, the poignancy. Yes, phenomena are coming and going. Yes, I can be uh, a fair amount in this quality, almost like a kind of uh, awareness without subject without, and without fixating on anything that has a, a beautiful quality to it. But there's also the poignancy of knowing that the trees are going to die, that we're going to die, that we're all limited, that we're all incarnated and we have these uh, challenges and we all have suffering. And that is kind of a counterbalance to the, some of the um, uh, qualities of this more open awareness. And I found it very crucial to do both during the retreat to combine them because they're, they're, not, they're not totally logically connected. In other words, uh, Achan Amar was talking about the conventional and the absolute. Sometimes there's paradox when we try to think it out too much. But the heart, in a way, can know that, maybe hold it a little bit better, that yes, this is, things, are, um, things are impermanent. And when we look carefully, we're not our, there's no self in the usual way that we think about self, that, that our deeper identity is different than we conventionally think. And that can be startling, right? And that can lead to certain confusions, but the heart really holds, holds that and knows that, but also says, yes, and they're individual beings, and we each suffer, and we each live and die, and we have to come back to that. And so that's the, that really becomes the bridge for the last part I want to talk about, which is the integration, the connecting it with daily life, the, the bringing of all of these dimensions into, um, into a life, into our actions, our own way of manifesting, um, manifesting what we learn. And maybe I'll end with, um, uh, I had a birthday in July, and a a close friend of mine sent me a birthday card, and she gave these wishes for me. And I liked them so much that I made them into my daily, um, almost like my daily intention. So each of those four phases, before breakfast, uh, the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, I would start by clarifying my intentions, doing gratitude practice for about five or ten minutes, and then saying these lines, which were, in a way, a, a way of integrating. Uh, and they gave me, they gave me uh, power and energy. And so here they are. I remember them. <laughs> here they are. May I find peace and serenity in the midst of samsara. Samsara is the, kind of the coming and going of life. May I find peace and serenity in the midst of samsara. May may the dragons and demons in my life be converted into allies and helpers. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) May I fully integrate the shadow and light of my body and being. May I be a conduit for the gods and goddesses to manifest on this earth. May joy and compassion always be with me. Thank you.
And may that all be true for you too. (laughs) Thank you. So we have some time if there are any reflections or comments or questions. It could be about my retreat. It could also be just about the basics, you know, because again, I was trying to name this map that we can hold for ourselves and just name these different dimensions, the ethics, the intention, the getting away from <coughs> habits, the, the uh, work with concentration and awareness and the balance of the psychological and the, the more universal and the heart practices and the integration. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty full map, but I think it, it kind of gives us a sense of all these pieces that we're probably all doing versions of it, some version of each of those. Please, Elizabeth, yeah, please. It's possible to have conscious awareness without language? Well, I know mm-hmm. it is physically. Um, yes. Yeah, I think it, it, it's, it's a big question. Did everyone hear the question, is it possible to have consciousness without language? Um, well, the kind of practice I was doing, there, there wasn't uh, language in my consciousness. There weren't words and concepts mo- most of the time. Uh, it, would, you know, it would be just sitting and ha- it was mostly, um, mostly that, that kind of, it kind of points to the way in Buddhist psychology they talk about there being six senses with the mind being uh, the sixth. And that's actually more, that comes out of the experience of meditation because the, you know, like my experience was, well, most of the time I would be with um, uh, different senses in in the Western sense. I'd be with body sensations. I'd be with hearing. I'd I'd hear, hear sounds, but I wouldn't conceptualize them. It wasn't like I heard something that said, oh, that's a blue jay, you know, or that's the sound of a blue jay, or, you know, I'd, or I'd feel, you know, I'd uh, feel body sensations and start thinking about it. It was more on a very uh, direct level without concepts. <coughs> and that's, that's a common experience in meditation, really going beyond concepts. And so when there would be thinking, that would be when language would reappear because my thoughts would typically occur with, with words, as, as they almost always do. Some people think with images, I, I believe. But there, there, those would be thoughts. So there would be, most of the time, there, weren't, there weren't, wasn't language, weren't concepts, weren't, weren't thoughts. I guess I just have trouble getting that. Thinking about it? <laughs> yeah, thinking about it. For example, um, um, impermanence. Yeah. Well, that's a concept. It's yeah. a thought, right? It can be. So how do, I guess I just don't quite get how I would become conscious of impermanence. Of impermanence. Without... Uh, well, um, there are a few, a few ways to, ex- to explore impermanence. And even, it's not even... Um, but I'll, I'll stay with, I was thinking about something else. I'll stay with your question. So, on the one hand, impermanence can be something that we reflect on. We can, um, 
You know, like I was, um, I was leading a sweat lodge on Saturday here. And it was a long one. It was two and a half hours and it was getting really hot. And about the last 15 minutes, I was reflecting on impermanence. <laughs> you know, it was, I was saying, I know this is going to end soon. I can just be with the present. My body was saying, this is getting a bit off the top or whatever, you know. But, uh, and so that, that, that's one aspect. That's reflection. You know, I can reflect, just hang in there. There's impermanence, etc. And that's reflection. There's also a way of experiencing impermanence when the mind gets pretty quiet that's uh, not, not um, conceptual. That is actually, and, and so this is why sometimes in, in the tradition, wisdom is taken to be something deeply intuitive, not just conceptual. And so we can actually be there. And may, maybe if you tune in even right now, if you can, I don't know if it's possible, just to let your mind be quiet. But when the mind is quiet, impermanence, the, the continual flux of things becomes more of a direct experience without language. And I'm sure you've experienced that at times. You know, maybe uh, when your mind is most quiet. Does, does anything resonate there? Well, I can re- recall a few times when I was sitting feeling like the boundaries of my body had just sort of merged. Yeah. And, and, was it a, and was there some sense of the impermanence or the flux of experience? Yeah, because yeah, that merging probably was also related to the mind getting quiet. So you, so you have had experiences of that then. And, but it's more, it's, it has to do with that quality of concentration and the mind getting still. And so then impermanence becomes a direct experience rather than a reflection. And, and that's, um, that's, that's where this practice goes, one of the directions it goes towards. Does that help some? Yeah, yeah. you need to do a whole lot more sitting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's actually, the taste is wonderful. That taste of impermanence as a direct experience is taken to be actually what frees us a lot. Because when we see that, and we just sit there and everything's just moving around and you know, just noticing as a direct experience. Because basically when the mind stops thinking so much, uh, we see things a little differently. And we see we're actually more in touch with the flux. And it's actually quite freeing because you sit there and everything's kind of continually the direct experiences of the flux of the sense world and of thoughts. And we say, how can I hang on to anything? Why should I? You know, we can watch thoughts go by very quickly when the mind's quiet. We, don't, we just don't follow them in the same way. And I think, imagine people have had some experience of that. So it, uh, it's a matter of having that be more, more and more stabilized. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good question. Thanks. Yeah. Please. On your retreat, did you get physical exercise? And if you didn't, why didn't you? Why did you choose not to? Well, it's, I, it's important in those kind of retreats to get a fair amount of exercise. That's why I took, in the afternoon, I took like a half hour, basically a half hour walk, about three miles. And I did yoga for short periods of time. And of course, the walking meditation I did a few times a day. That's, I mean, even if it's slow walking, it's, you know, it's a half, you know, I probably did an hour and a half, two hours of walking every day, which, which is interesting because it's, it's the old tradition. They worked in exercise under the guise of walking meditation. <laughs> Does that? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. please. Uh, you talked about doing, uh, meditating for two or three hours. Yeah. Did you mean 
without a break? Yeah, what I basically, when I, was, when I was in my 20s, I would just sit for three hours without moving. You know, I was kind of a little bit macho, but <laughs> it's what young men and some young women do, <laughs> typically if you go to retreats. But um, yeah, I'd basically, I'd basically sit for an hour or an hour and a half. What I did was I would, um, I had my cushion facing like the, the ridge two miles away and facing there, and I would sit there, and then at a certain point, I would just uh, shift my position. I typically would go sit on the bed. You know, I'd go right from one without a break. I'd go right from sitting on the cushion to sitting on the bed maybe for half an hour and just continue the practice, and then I'd go back to the cushion. It was kind of like, you know, if I would do two and a half hours, it would be typically three different places. So it's, it, uh, I mean, I could have stayed more with, you know, um, what we would call pain, but I, I thought it was more skillful just to really stay when it, with a fairly balanced place. You know, if I did feel pain, I would use it as a meditation object, but that shifting permitted me to keep the practice going, but not to have, you know, my posture or should I move be an issue. And I felt that was skillful in that situation. So it's something you might do, you know, you might try just to, you, I mean, you could sit in a, you know, sit in a chair, sit for 45 minutes, stand up for three minutes, then come back down and sit for 45 minutes. We'll do the same thing. But it's basically keeping the awareness going, but just shifting the posture in a minimal way so that we kind of keep the same focus for that sustained period. Yeah, please. Did you mix periods of time when you would have your eyes open and yeah. have your eyes closed? Yeah. And was there any particular, was it kind of what felt uh, skillful in the moment, or did you have yeah. a plan around that? Yeah. Um, I did it more in the second half of the retreat, because it takes, uh, the, that kind of open awareness with eyes closed takes a fair amount of concentration, and the open awareness with eyes open takes more. <laughs> and so it needed to have a fairly stabilized consciousness, so I did it more the second half, but I start, I start off doing it, and I would Towards the end, I was doing about half and half. But I, yeah, I would, I would, you know, with every sitting, I would try to do um, something like half and half towards the end. Yeah. Please. Mm, you talked about uh, scheduling your retreat. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I always think about the future and prepare for the future all the time. And it, it seems like it violates the Buddhist rule of staying in the moment. You know what I'm saying? I, I do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> Let's see. Let me pl- let me it. let me plan how I'm going to respond to that. <laughs> uh, maybe it's a good way to. We're at eleven. Maybe it's a good last question. Uh, it's actually it's a, it's a great question, but because um, the one can plan from the standpoint of the present moment. And it's vital to plan. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha planned. So it's actually... So I think there, there, can, there are some misunderstandings of what uh, it means to be in the present moment uh, that are, are widespread. Uh, and the, I think partly we... Uh, because planning is a natural function and in a way, meditation doesn't lead us to use our minds in a way unnaturally. 
you know, we, we plan, you know, in a lot of traditions it's thought that thinking is bad, planning is bad, stop thinking, stop planning. Now in the short run that can be helpful. <laughs> you know, like if we're, if we're thinkers and planners, it's really valuable to sit for 45 minutes and try to keep coming back to the present moment with our breath. So it's more, I would say it's more of a, um, a skillful means or a, a means to learn something. But in the, and, and it's really to use planning wisely. Because I think the critique is that if we are preoccupied with planning, so we're planning all the time, you know, as my personal conditioning was to do a lot of planning, then if we notice that, then uh, we can see that as actually, uh, we can see where it's coming from, maybe coming out of fear or anxiety or conditioning or whatever. And we look at that and we, we actually study, in mindfulness practice, we study the planning. And the technique there would be to just notice whenever we're planning to come back to the present. And so that's what we would do in formal meditation. And so it would help us, I think, to actually be able to plan more effectively and more efficiently because we're not doing it all the time necessarily. Because in that sense, I would say that planning can be kind of like a surrogate function or we use it for other reasons. We use it to give ourselves security as opposed simply to plan, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when when we really examine the planning as we do when we do mindfulness practice, we can see uh, where we're coming from and then we can, I think in the long run, you know, my personal experience is that I spend about um, uh, one-tenth of the time planning that I used to before I started meditation, and I think it's better planning. Uh, but there still is a, a, a purpose for that. There's also a place for valuable reflection about the past. It's just not to be dominated by that. So that's a, that's a complex subject, so that's, that's a beginning. Does that help some? Oh, definitely. Yeah, okay. Um, it have to be really brief because we're at... Okay, yeah. You didn't keep track of time. Did you keep track of the days as they went by or did you kind of at what point? I, d- I did keep track of the days. <laughs> 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 well, I kept, I kept a journal and I, I would... I actually... Uh, a lot of it was writing down my dreams and reflecting. So I actually named... And I, I needed to know when I was going to leave. <laughs> I also did some phone work with John Travis at particular that was the extent I had some times and dates where we actually talked on the phone so there was, it was some some use of time but mostly off the clocks yeah but that would be nice too to experiment with that yeah. sometimes I forgot what day it was and didn't know but I could I could find out pretty quickly Good. So let's. Uh, thanks for your attention. It's a pleasure. It feels like a, like a report back to the community, you know. And I hope I hope this was useful to you. So let's just let's just sit for about thirty seconds to finish. And let whatever was helpful from the morning be present. And any intentions which come out of the morning be present as well.
So knowing and remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. May the fruits of the morning be offered outward for the benefit of others, for the benefit of all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.